This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. More data is being produced today than ever before, and big data is creating new opportunities for companies all across the world. I'm joined today by Armin Avanesians, Chief Investment Officer of Goldman Sachs Asset Management's Quantitative Investment Strategies Team to discuss big data and its implications for industries and markets. Armin, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jake. So to kick it off, Armin, can you give us a broad overview of big data, help us understand the scale of it and where we are in the trajectory? Of course, Jake. To understand the scale and where we are, I think it's useful to understand where we've come. Now, using data to make decisions has been with us as long as we've been human. I mean, deriving general principles from specific observations is the core of inductive reasoning. It's the core of human intelligence. Okay, so inductive reasoning's been around forever. What's new? Well, what's new is this term called big data. It only was coined in the late 90s, and it really took off in the middle of the last decade. And what was it? What happened? Well, really, it was born from the birth of the Internet. The Internet basically made data available to a wide group of people, a large amount of data available to a large number of people. The democratization of data. Absolutely. And when you make this data available, well, how are you supposed to find it? Well, there was this company called Yahoo, and they were the pinnacle of the search engine at the time. And literally what they did was categorized everything there was on the internet. So you take like knowledge and you characterize it as librarians did with the Dewey Decimal System, yes. where everything has its rightful place and then humans characterize where things belong under that system. That's right. And that was really the state of the art as it relates to data analysis. That was the state of the art in how to think about and categorize data. Well, Google went actually about it a little differently. And their core insight was to allow data to catalog itself. Now, we take that for granted, but back then that was revolutionary. You needed the hardware to be able to do this. You needed the interconnections to do it quick. You needed software to run this. But most importantly, you needed an entire branch of learning, an entire branch of statistics to be able to have machines do what humans were doing at the time. This entire branch of statistics is now called machine learning. After Google, there came the other disruptors such as Amazon, Uber, Netflix. All of whom are taking that data analyzing it and creating more predictive kind of analytics around it. That's right. And it's gone even beyond the internet companies. Today, you've got brick and mortar companies, you've got your retailers, insurance, banks, obviously any company that is in a large scale business to consumer business. You've also got industrial companies creating data internally for themselves. They're putting sensors into their factories and being able to measure how their own systems and operations are working. To drive greater efficiency. Exactly. In that case, to drive greater efficiency. You've got healthcare. You know, your doctor today has access to your personal DNA 
and the statistics involved in the DNA of thousands of other people and is able to better target cures for your specific illness that's really targeted to your specific body, your specific needs. The use over here is really exploded across every industry, across every field, and across every academic area of study as well. Take even politics. Uh, you know, in the old days, you talked about retail politics, and retail politics was going to door to door and shaking people's now hands. Now you're only going to the door that the computer tells you makes a difference. Absolutely. You know, if you look at the last campaign, you call people on a particular issue and see if they're willing to give a $1 donation. Your purpose isn't to raise the $1 donation. You know what's important to those people. So later on, when you have your targeted advertising, you can target your issues to those specific individuals. From that, you can project who is actually going to be enthusiastic enough to actually be a spokesperson for your candidate or your position, and from that, drive voter turnout in your favor. And that was the story of the last, the uh, last presidential elections. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So today, for the last few years, we're now seeing the industrialization, as it were, of big data. You hear more and more mm -hmm. companies saying, big data is going to revolutionize my sector, my business, my industry. Is this too good to be true? Should businesses be skeptical of the promise mm -hmm. of big data? Well, look, on the one hand, I think of big data as really evolutionary, not revolutionary. Computers were revolutionary. They were only invented really 60 years ago, were broadly available to people 30 years ago. The Internet was created 30 years ago, has only been widely available for at most 20 years. But data has been around forever. So in that way, it's really evolutionary. Companies have always used data to better understand their customers, better understand their competitors, better understand their environment, better understand how to work their own organization. I'll also say that evolution is a much more powerful force in the world than revolution. Armin, the explosion in the amount of data is easy for most people to recognize, but maybe harder to quantify. IBM found that 2.5 quintillion bytes of data are created every day, and we've heard that 90% of the world's data was created over the last few years, but that less than 1% of that data has ever been evaluated. So the creation of data isn't the issue. It's the ability to operationalize it, analyze it. Talk about some of the tools we are using and others are using to help make sense of all this data. Absolutely. You know, I think that if I use Yahoo as an example, that was the old way you dealt with data. You have a view, you have a model, you go through all the data and you kind of build indices and so on like that. Most of the tools that were available to do that all worked on something called structured data. Name, phone, number, zip. It's data that's been formatted in a way that's easy for a computer to digest. A social security number. Exactly. But most of the data, and like 80% of the data that you're talking about, is unstructured data. It's images, and that's whether it's satellite images or whether it's a photograph of your kids on Instagram. It's text, all of the email, all of the reports that are With written. With all the grammatical flaws in them. Yes, information created by humans 
for human consumption. But you know what? There's a lot of humans out there producing a lot of reports, a lot of information for people. And then there's social media. You look at your connections on LinkedIn, your connections in Facebook. It tells a lot about you. And websites. There's so much data now that is unstructured. And how do you process it? My own example, I was a student at MIT. And we had a project. It was in the middle of the Cold War in the uh, early 80s. And it was to use image processing to find Soviet tanks in the German forest. And I'm a really excited kid working in signal processing. And the NSA gives you 20, 30 pictures of tanks. Here's one in the snow. Here's one in the fall, one in the winter. You apply all of these techniques that you've learned. And you find ways to find patterns to discover that Soviet tank. And later on, I worked at Bell Laboratories. And there, there was a big focus on speech processing. And we focused on the vocal cords and the model of how people actually speak, enunciate. And with a lot of, at that time, advanced techniques, we're able to understand when somebody said zero, two, three, <laughs> in 15 different dialects. Right. But what was the commonality there? Humans were basically doing the learning. And they were using computers essentially like calculators. Essentially, the technique was being executed by a computer, but I, the human, was sorting was through the front end and of it. being yeah. the front end. And that works when you have a small amount of data. When you have a lot of data, you've got to get the power of computers that can work 24-7, and you can buy a lot of them. And to do that, you have that entire new area called machine learning. And what is machine learning? It's simply having machines tackle problems the same way humans do. How did I do that image processing? Well, I learned. How did those people at Yahoo do all of that indexing? They learned. They went through data. They used certain heuristics. They tried what worked. They learned from their mistakes. They constantly bettered themselves. They constantly focused on learning more. And that's what they did. The whole point of machine learning is for the machine to learn like a human does. You mimic, you adapt, you get feedback when you're doing something right and wrong, and then you go on from there. Now, in terms of the tools that are available, there's two really different branches there. One is called supervised, and one is called unsupervised. I'll use as an example, supervised learning is like going to school, and you've got a teacher they're sort of leading you along the way. They're helping you with the answers. With a but set curriculum, in essence. Right? Yes, yeah. but you've still got to learn on your own. Unsupervised learning is the school of hard knocks. You try something, and you fail, and you fail miserably, and you just got to pick yourself up. It was a learning experience, and you do it again. And just like in real life, both techniques are powerful and useful in different ways. But that entire process of having the computer learn from the data is this tool set that is really just at the very beginning of being sought out and implemented. So Armin, as head of the quant team at Goldman Sachs for the last five years, you and your team have been using computers to give you an investing edge. Talk about some of the similarities and differences between quant investing, what used to be called quant investing, and big data investing. How are those different from traditional investing? Of course, and to give you a good explanation again, let me use history. Quant investing historically was about looking at 
structured data, basically the financials. Look at the company's financials, its earnings, its book ratios, its cash flow. Read the numbers that come out of an analyst report, their earnings forecasts, their upgrades, their downgrades. Look at a few simple sentiment factors. Basically the numbers, though. Yeah, look at the numbers, put them together in a uh, economically intuitive way, and over the long run, it seems that you made money. There was a famous Buffett factor. You could duplicate much of Warren Buffett's success by just focusing on investing in high-quality, low-risk stocks. And in fact, there's a very easy set of numbers you can use to define quality and low risk. That was the sense of quant investing back then. Today, it's very different. And what are we doing today? We're really tapping into all the data that's available about a company. And most of it is really unstructured. Before, in the quant investing, we had roughly 30 or 40 signals that went into our model that made investments in U.S. stocks. Today, we have over 150, and that doesn't even include the industry-specific signals that we've developed since then. We're obviously looking at financial data, but we're also looking at substantial amount of non-financial data. So for example, when we look at those 10Ks and 10Qs, we used to just look at the financials, get a feed. Strip the numbers out. Exactly. Today, we read everything that management has to uh, say about itself. Which is intuitive that yes. a human would do that, but the computer can do much more. That's right. When the management is talking about a particular theme in its market, it may be, for some set of companies, China. Maybe for another set of companies, oil. Now, we know oil is going to be important to Exxon. We may not realize that it's important to a bank. But when banks have made a lot of investments to fracking companies, well, the price of oil is affecting them. They're going to be talking about it, and you're going to pick up on that theme. But, you know, you go beyond that. I just mentioned the 10Ks and 10Qs. There's a lot more data out there. I mentioned the analyst reports. Before, we stripped out the numbers, like you said. Today, we read the entire report. We read for the change in an analyst's tone. I mean, we know that analysts, before they change their recommendation, a very formal process, you'll pick up that they're just starting to get maybe a little more nervous. They're just starting to use more hedging terms. You'll also pick so up... So you're actually looking at the adjectives. You're looking exactly at the tone that the analyst uses. And we can train the computer to pick up on tone in the same way that a human has been trained to pick up on tone. We also pick up on the themes that the analysts talk about. So, for example, when an analyst is asking questions in an earnings call, the answers may not be as important as the questions. When they're asking questions of several different companies, those are probably key themes we should take note of. The computers allow you to minimize the possibility of a human error or human emotion? I think of it differently. There is always a view in investing that you have to uh, eliminate human emotional bias, and all good investors do that, be they fundamental or uh, quantitative. Quantitative investing, yes, it's meant to reduce or eliminate emotion, but trust me, when our portfolios are down, I still get very emotional. The point of the computers here, though, is not the elimination of emotion. It really is the digestion of large amounts of data 
that a human can't possibly digest themselves. So mimicking what a human does, but on a greater scale. Exactly. An equity analyst could maybe cover 20 companies. A credit analyst could maybe cover 60 or 80 companies. A human has a certain limit to how many companies they're going to keep track of. And the number of themes and connections they personally can find is limited by what they personally can go through. The set of computers can look for connections across every company in the universe. It can read every research report on every company, every earnings transcript, and find themes that you normally wouldn't be looking for. So when you find those themes and you see connections between things that you wouldn't necessarily have intuited, how do you make sure that those correlations are actionable and real? Of course. For us in our business, there's a very, very simple metric. Are you making money for your clients? You're that's making, actionable. That's measurable and definitely actionable. And our quality metric for our research is, does it make money for our clients? And the number of strategies that we employ, we, like I said, 150 signals, any one of which is going to have a bad day, it's going to have a bad week. When you put the sum of them together, they'll tend to do very well over time. That's really the investment that we make to ensure that we've got signals that are going to do better than a coin toss, better than 50-50. Because if you've got signals that do make money in the long run and you put them all together, you've really got a strong winning team. Armin, you talked about 150 signals. What does a signal mean for you and how do you deploy signals to arrive at investing hypotheses? Of course, I mean, a signal is simply a way to characterize an investment thesis. Let's take the simplest of all, buy cheap stocks. So just take price to book. Take the companies in the universe, sort them by their price to book. The lowest price to book is the cheapest stock. The highest price to book is the most expensive. The ones on the bottom are the ones you want to buy. The ones on the top are the ones you want to sell. And apportion your weights proportionally along the way. That's a simple example. Any of these other approaches I've talked to comes down to doing all of this big data analysis, but getting down to a simple signal that takes the stocks in a universe, sorts them, where the ones on the bottom are the ones I like the least, and the ones on the top are the ones that I like the most. So in this interconnected world, obviously, and you've talked a little bit about this, but what happens way over here in one company has ripple effects that, that sometimes are a little hard to discern if you're just following that one sector. How do you use the big data to identify those relationships or those unseen relationships sometimes? Essentially by letting the computer loose on all of the data. The computers pick up on what we call cross-market themes that a human won't necessarily pick up on. And the core in our quanta investing is actually to focus on the cross-market themes, the cross-stock themes. To us, making one bet on one company, you could be right, you could be wrong, but you know what? The best baseball batter in the world strikes out six out of, you know, or, or, is, or, or out is out six yeah, out of yeah. uh, 10 times. <laughs> right. And batting 400 is pretty darn good. You know, if you've got a good average, you just want a lot of at-bats. And you want to focus not on the home runs, you want to focus on the number of times on base. So our approach 
is to take all of these approaches and signals and make controlled bets across the entire equity complex to be able to make, in the long run, good performance for our clients. So while you weren't part of the quant team during the financial crisis, it's no secret that some of the quant funds did very poorly in the run-up mm-hmm. to the crisis or, or during the crisis in 07. How did that period where some of the quant funds got it so wrong, how did that shape the way people use big data in investing today? Sure. The story of the quant crisis, I think, in 07, mirrored every financial crisis I've ever seen or read about, and it's two components, leverage and overcrowding. And they tend to be linked because the borrowing and the crowding tends to create its own momentum, giving people even more confidence that there's something right in what they're doing. And in that way, it could you know the quant crisis of 07, not very different than the crisis of 08. But there's something actually very different, I think, about it as well. An analogy I would make there is not the financial industry, it's actually the tech sector. When I look back on the internet and the early bubble. The late 90s. Exactly, yeah. 2001. We all remember Webvan and WorldCom and Pets.com and all of those companies with crazy valuations. Not necessarily doors. crazy ideas, but. And that's what I want to get to. Yeah. You know, they weren't crazy ideas. They were right, they were just early. What happened in the aftermath is that you got companies like Google and Facebook and Amazon and Netflix. And in the aftermath, you've actually seen a true revolution in the tech sector. And I think there is nobody who believes that that is going away. I think the quant crisis, in a lot of ways, quantitative investing was right, but it was early. We could use very basic tools to analyze structured data, but we didn't have the tools available to do all of the things that a human can do when they're looking to make investments. Today, we have all of those tools and we have the ability to use them in a more scalable way, which I think in the long run gives us a significant advantage. And how do you look at the issue of overcrowding? Obviously, that's something that's measurable at times. No, of course. And by the way, there's a whole bunch of tools that were created afterwards to measure just that. But in terms of overcrowding, what happened in the quantitative world, there was only really so much data available. Price to book, price to earnings. I mean, there's only so many company ratios you could look at. There are only so many sentiment factors you could look at. And everybody's looking essentially at the same thing and coming really to the same conclusions. And so the crowding was just the nature of the limited amount of data that you had. Today, you have a huge amount of data. You had pointed out before that only 1% of the data out there has ever been analyzed. Different quantitative groups will be looking at and accessing different sets of data. I mean, we at Goldman Sachs, you know, we look to benefit certainly from data that's publicly available, data that we get through subscriptions, and data that we know is valuable because we're sitting here in the DNA of Goldman and we understand what is important and what's not using our insights that are part of being a member of a large organization. I'm a quant investor, but I'm in a division with a fundamental hedge fund, a fundamental equity business, and a fundamental fixed income business. And I meet every day with the CIOs of these businesses And I get the benefit of their fundamental insights that helps me 
direct our computers to look for what the fundamental people are talking about and buzzing about. It's important when you're using the computers to realize that at the end of the day, they certainly are still tools. We use as an example chess. A human cannot beat uh, a computer chess player. It's hopeless. I'll tell you, for me, it was very humbling when my Palm Pilot could beat, beat me. you at chess. And yeah. for those of you who don't remember <laughs> Palm, Palm Pilot. Pilots. That was a 90s uh, yeah, technology. Yeah, just, just look it up. But <laughs> what's also true is that a human with a computer program will beat any computer program out there. The marriage of the human with the computer, I think, is truly unbeatable. So when we first sat down, you said we're not in a big data revolution, but a big data evolution. So to go back to baseball, where would you say we are right now? Just getting started or nearing the seventh inning stretch? I think we're in the third inning. The game has really just begun. There are players out there. There's some people behind, some people ahead. But I would say that we're just getting into the rhythm. The game has got a long way to go. And by the way, I think that uh, we're in the third inning of what's going to be a seven-game series. Well, much to look forward to. Thank you, Armin. Absolutely. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on April 26, 2016. The views and opinions expressed herein should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities, and such views and opinions may differ from those of Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research or other departments or divisions of Goldman Sachs and its affiliates. This information may not be current, and Goldman Sachs has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any Goldman Sachs entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk.